Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 75. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Also, please, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, share it with a friend and also think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. Okay, on to today's episode. Our guest today is Dr. Sonia Lott, and she is going to talk about grief and loss. And man, wow, this was a heavy episode, especially for me dealing with some of my own loss and grief in the past. So I really enjoyed our conversation. It was to the point and just really, you know, when you look at addiction and you look at healing and you look at just, you know, when we have pain in our life, the importance of connection to be able to walk through it all and also to be, be able to frame addiction through that lens of grief and loss. So it was a great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to Sonia. Been wanting to get her on the podcast for a while and we finally got our schedules to match up. So I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Let's start the episode. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is going to talk about an issue that has a lot to do with addiction and impacts addiction, grief and loss. So today we have Dr. Sonia Lott. Sonia, you want to introduce yourself? 
Hi. Yeah, I am a licensed psychologist in Pennsylvania, and I maintain a private practice where I help individuals and organizations to transform their experiences of grief. I have some advanced training, particularly in complicated grief, the diagnosis and treatment of that from Columbia University's Center for Complicated Grief. I'm also the founder and CEO of SemPsych LLC, which is a continuing education company that offers continuing ed for licensed mental health professionals, specifically in multicultural competence. I'm also the host of the Reflections on Multicultural Competence podcast, a podcast in which I encourage other mental health professionals to reflect on and begin to transform the narratives that we've created about ourselves and others as it relates to who we are as cultural beings. Thank you so much. So we've kind of been in contact back and forth. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the Addicted Mind podcast is because of one of your specialties, which is grief and loss. And I felt like grief and loss was such a big part of the addictive process. And so I thought having you on, I think that would be helpful to the listeners. Well, I'm really grateful to be here and to be able to share in whatever way that might help people to better understand addiction, as well as understanding grief and how they, you know, are intertwined in so many ways. Right. So as we were kind of prepping for the episode, we started talking about the ACEs study and that had a lot to do with uh, early childhood grief and loss. So can you speak to that? Yeah, I wanted to talk about the ACE studies, ACE referring to adverse childhood experiences and the findings. It was Kaiser Health right. Care System out in California that did the original studies, and many have come from that. But that childhood experiences such as abuse, neglect, any type of abuse or neglect, parental absence, parental substance abuse, witnessing violence, particularly of mother by partner, those types of experiences set us up for a monumental increased risk for addiction, many other things, but particularly addiction, substance abuse. And it's really, if we can frame those adverse experiences in terms of loss, the loss of physical safety or the loss of emotional safety that really I believe is our birthright and that we need not just to survive but to thrive. The absence of a parent if they are um, incarcerated or if they're there but they're not present because they have an addiction sets us up for our own addiction later in life. And I believe there's an accumulation of loss around those adverse experiences that are, one, not acknowledged, and two, therefore, never grieved and resolved. Right. So a person who has these kind of losses, hold on to it. Right. You know, severely affected by them. And so oftentimes what addiction does, and you know this, it's about numbing. Right. Emptiness, pain, whatever it might be. And so... Yeah, it sets us up for addiction and other losses that come with that. Right. I mean, I think this study, it was huge. If I remember correctly, I think they were saying they had like 17,000 participants in the study. Right. And it was such a strong correlation mm -hmm. that, it was, I mean, 
it really just confirmed kind of, I think, what a lot of us already knew who work in the field, Mm -hmm. but it really just made it concrete. Mm-hmm. I think, though, in terms of grief and loss, we don't often frame adverse experiences in that way to recognize, to appreciate the connection, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, no, I think. Can you talk more about like framing that in grief and loss? Well, I think many things can be framed in terms of loss that we don't necessarily acknowledge as that, but our bodies take it in, our hearts take it in as that. And so that we end up being diagnosed with depression, with anxiety, but the root and the root cause is a loss of really connection, a loss of a secure attachment from early in life. And so I think when we frame it in that way, we can think about both the individual and how they're presenting as a result to substance use or abuse in a different way. Does that make sense? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, here, I think we're born into this world, right? And we want safety, right? want connection, or I wouldn't say we want, we need it. That's right. And I think at the time, that's incredibly painful. And as we become adults, you know, I think through some of my own work and healing, I could begin to see that stuff that I didn't get in some ways as a loss, like, and almost you have to grieve it, it seems like. That's right. It deserves to be grieved. Right. It really does. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when people are in the midst of addiction, like they're in active addiction, whether it's substance or whether it's a behavior, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, the addiction has so much power that I don't think they actually see the grief at the time. That's absolutely right. They can't be present mm-hmm. to it. Or if they are for short periods of time, then it's time, that's an indication that it's time to use again. Right. To, you know, numb that awareness of the pain associated with loss. Right. And can you talk more about that? Like, how does the body experience that? We experience it in every possible way. You know, the ways that we think and feel influence what's happening in the brain immediately you know, what's happening with our serotonin, norepinephrine, all of our neurotransmitters. And so there's a immediate impact and a direct as well as an indirect long-term impact as we are thinking and feeling in ways that are negative or that are painful, then our brain chemistry responds to that. That influences the ways that hormones are released, you know, for going into the fight or flight state, we're having the cortisol that's continuously released from the adrenal glands. You know, we have increased heart rate so that those immediate reactions end up over time as it becomes chronic reactions to have an impact on every part of our body, including our immune system, you know, so that we become more susceptible to all types of illnesses. We're affected by the ways that we think and feel in terms of our ability to rest well, which influences, again, what's happening, you know, hormonally. And so it's sort of a cyclical thing, but the thought or the feeling can be the catalyst that gets that fight or flight response going, which then impacts the body in every possible way, which then impacts the ways that we're thinking and feeling about what's happening and where we have control or that we don't and the impact of our behaviors, our addictive behaviors. And so it's a cyclical. Right. So here you have a person who probably the majority of people struggle with addiction, have these adverse childhood events, 
get into this addiction, mask all of this loss and grief through the addiction. And then hopefully, you know, our wish, I think, is that they get sober or, or get into recovery. And then I think that's where that grief just starts to, that's the next challenge, I guess. I think so, because you're available when you're in recovery, when you're sober and in recovery to feel again. And that's really hard. You know, there's so much to feel. And any time that we lose something that we consider to be a value, that's loss, you know? And so if it's the loss of the dream that you have for yourself, or if it's the loss of relationships that have been destroyed along the way, the loss of your sense of self with all the shame that comes from addiction. It's just loss any way that you frame it, that you think about it. But I think it's important to frame it as loss because you get to heal in a different way if you are aware that it's loss, if you are working with a therapist who recognizes that as loss, then you get to think about it and work with it in a different way. It kind of changes your frame. Right. Then if you just think about it as depression, you know, but to think about where does depression come from, you know, and I just think it's really crucial to the recovery process to frame the losses, to have an awareness of them so that they can be properly grieved, that you can let go and suffer less, really. Right. I think that's critically important to recovery, to be able to frame it because addiction costs so much on so many levels Mm -hmm. that to be able to mourn those losses is just to be able to frame it so that you can start that journey. How would, you know, if someone is going through this, how would they start to do that? Well, I think that I don't know that the self-help groups frame recovery, any part of recovery in this way, but I think the self-help NA can be really helpful in terms of providing support for individuals who, if they are able to recognize a lot of their experience as loss, they can find support there. But really with therapists who are informed about both grief and addiction, mm-hmm. it's really helpful if they're able to work with a therapist who has that paradigm, if you will. Because I feel like if you don't, you can't move forward with finding new meaning in your living or establishing a new identity once you're sober and in recovery if you don't grieve what you've, quote, lost, who you used to be. You can't fully step into a new you, if you will. Right. You need to be able to go through that journey. And I think also, you know, that's why support is so critical in this process, because with all that grief and loss, trying to do it alone is just so hard. Living is about connection. Yeah. It really is. And then going back again to, and I want to acknowledge that there are people who have what I believe are, quote, referred to as normal childhoods. Right, right. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, good, happy childhood. Right. <laughs> or at least they don't have an accumulation of adverse childhood experiences that set them up for addiction. But Any of us at any point in our life can have one life experience that puts us there. I feel like we're all one bad experience away from the potential for addiction. So I want to acknowledge that even the people who have those really happy childhoods can have a, a devastating event end up, you know. I think that's true. Yeah, in some type of addiction. Well, one thing I can definitely say 
about grief and loss and what you were just saying about individuals who have really big losses. And, you know, I think another reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is for me, you know, early, this was probably about 11 years ago, we lost our first child. And so grief and loss is profound in those kind of situations. And to be able to understand that and process that is just so important and you need support. Mm -hmm. You know, I appreciate you reminding me of that because that was something that I wanted to talk about if you were open to it in our podcast from when we first began to talk about it. And one of the things I'm really clear about is that our society doesn't get that when you lose a child, if it's a miscarriage, if it's stillbirth or shortly thereafter, there's something about the way that society perceives that. And I think that it can be even more isolating for moms and dads who lose a child in that way. And many times couples don't make it through that. Yeah, no, that's so true. I mean, I've seen it. We were really lucky in that we had a support group of other parents who were going through the same thing, but I don't think we could have done it alone. And so, I mean, we needed each other at that time because there was no way to to cope with that kind of loss. Profound loss. Profound loss. And, but that kind of goes back to the need for community and connection to walk through these dark moments. Mm-hmm. That was what I wanted to say was a few minutes ago was around connection. We live for connection. That's how we not just survive, but how we thrive in every way. We are social creatures. We need each other and we definitely need community in the hardest times in our lives. But what I think is so interesting and also painful is that the vulnerability that comes with needing to ask for that connection, to ask for that community, to ask for that help is so challenging for us. It is without a (laughs) doubt, you know, and it's what we need and what we, everybody wants. I think the majority of people want to give and want to receive. Yet it is incredibly vulnerable to say, I need help. I'm not, I can't do this on my own. That's right. I don't know where to go from here. Right. I don't know my next step. Right. Yeah. And especially when, you know, I think for people who are in recovery too, and they're going through that process of looking back at the losses. That's right. It's, you know, they got to cry with somebody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the irony of that is that the more losses we've experienced, even if we've like very actively participated in burning bridges along the way in addiction, right? You know, it's still loss at the end of the day. And the more loss we experience, the greater the likelihood of fearing connection because of the possibility of loss again, sometimes not even trusting ourselves to get it right, you know, to do our part. Yeah, if I hope for this... Mm-hmm. I may just lose it. So I'd almost in some ways just not want to live with the anxiety of losing it. So I just won't do it. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So as we're talking about it, I'm like so feeling, even though I believe this, I'm like really feeling what we're saying around the importance of framing addiction also, not exclusively, of course, but including the paradigm of loss in addiction, you know, how people get to addiction, how people manage addiction, and how they get sober and move forward in a recovery process. 
so important. I had another question about grief and loss too, because I've also done some interviews, an interview before this one with Aaron Miller, with the mother who lost her son. And that's another side of grief and loss and addiction. The people who are left behind or left in the wake of addiction. I mean, they have all grief and loss. Mm -hmm. So this person that you interviewed, her child died as a result of addiction? Of addiction, yeah. He died of a heroin overdose. Yeah, I know. It's just beyond tragic. But I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that loss and grief as well Mm -hmm. for those individuals out there. When children die at whatever age, it doesn't matter, it's uh, particularly challenging for parents because it violates, if you will, the natural order of things. Parents don't expect to have children and bury their children, you know. Parents, particularly mothers, because, you know, mothers tend to be the primary caregivers, particularly that emotional connection in the early years, feel a greater sense of responsibility when a child dies. Should I have known that they were sick? Should I have known that they hadn't stopped using that? Should I have known they were lying when they said they were going to in a meeting? Should I have been able to say something differently? Should I have found a therapist? You know, it's that caregiving instinct, if you will, that, or that caregiving pattern. Right. That it's just not instinctual, but from the practice over time and the reinforcement that society gives us. Yeah. It sets us up to feel that I should have known, I should have been able to do something. I should have loved them differently. I should have something. So the loss of a child is the type of loss that sets someone up for complicated grief. doesn't always happen, but it's certainly a vulnerability. When you lose that child to an addiction, it's a lot like losing a loved one to suicide. There's a greater sense of helplessness. There's sometimes shame and stigma. You know, it's like with suicide when you read in the paper that somebody died and the family's asking for privacy at this time. Right. You know, that to me (laughs) often reads, and so this person, you know, died of an overdose or killed themselves and we're not ready to deal with it yet. Yeah. Um, Society doesn't give us that space. There's a stigma, you know, and so that complicates the grief process also. But in the case of addiction, loved ones, and you're talking about this mom who you had time with on your podcast, during addiction, there's a series of losses that the loved ones are experiencing. The loss in this case of her son, Mm -hmm. was it her son? The loss of who she thought he was or who he used to be, the loss of the dreams that he had for his life, you know, even though, of course, as individuals, we get to have our own dreams and so on. But our parents, you know, have those dreams for us too, their own dreams of what our life is going to be and what they are hoping to co-create with children. So there's loss all along the way that really hasn't likely been acknowledged. So by the time the child dies, it's compounded loss, you know, and sometimes it's conflictual because when a child is active in an addiction, particularly something like heroin that has a potential for overdoses so high, you know, particularly with heroin, sometimes there's a relief that the parent, as well as other loved ones might feel that it's over, Mm -hmm. you know, totally. and try to sit with that, you know, Mm -hmm. 
the reality of that, that you are grieving the death of your child, but at the same time, you're feeling the relief that it's over. Yeah. And those contradictory feelings and moving through that is just so difficult. Right. It requires a lot of permission giving from oneself, from others. And again, that connection, that sense of community, particularly with other people who have experienced the same thing. Right. I think that was one of the really, you know, how we survived it is that we had other parents who had also lost their children and we could talk frankly about it, you know, and that was helpful. I would guess you could also not talk at all about it. Right. Yeah, we could do either. And it was all okay. Yeah, that it was the heart connection that people knew what you could imagine what you were feeling. You didn't always have to have words. Right. So, I mean, I think like people out there, it's like reach out, find there's community out there. There are people out there that can understand. You might have to look for them, Mm -hmm. find them and search for them, but they're out there. I totally agree. And, you know, I would encourage people who are in recovery, who are seeking mental health professionals for support to ask them to think about, you know, ask a question. So what do you think about loss with addiction? Do you think that, you know, that's something we can talk about? You know, the client can bring the knowledge to the therapist, even though, of course, ultimately it's our responsibility, you know, but ask the question, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Wow, Sonia. Well, we're kind of coming up on our time, but, and this is definitely a heavy episode, but anybody out there who's listening to this episode, what would you want to tell them? That it's really important to acknowledge the need for connection, to acknowledge loss in your life, and to have space and places in which you can grieve that. You deserve that. Other people who love you deserve for you to be able to have that process. The other thing I would say is that life is about impermanence. It's about loss all the time. The only thing that we can hold on to for sure is that change is going to happen. You know, relationships are going to come and go, but we can really suffer less if we can embrace loss when it happens and find meaning in it and still move forward, if that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. So thank you so much. How can people find you if they want more information or want to know more? How can they find you? Okay, before I share that, I just want to let you know that I'm really grateful for this invitation. I feel like we were just getting started. (laughs) Yeah, I know. There's so much more to say, but I'm just grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And who knows, maybe we can record another episode as well. I say yes to that already. (laughs) But in terms of finding me, I am licensed in Pennsylvania. So anyone in Pennsylvania who's looking for a therapist, you can find me at drsonyalott.com, www.drsonyalott.com. My email address and phone number are available there for individuals who are just interested in a consult or finding out more about grief and loss, you can also find me there. And for mental health professionals who are looking for continuing education in multicultural competence, in meaning as it relates to looking in our own biases and assumptions and challenging the narratives that we've created about ourselves and others as cultural beings, as well as understanding more about other cultural beings and 
um, how we can really show up in a space of to enhance connection, really seeing each other, hearing each other, loving and respecting each other, then you can reach me at simpsych.com, www.cempsych.com. And I just want to add that I'm an APA or SimPsych is an APA approved sponsor, continuing ed for psychologists. All right. Awesome. And I will link all that information in the show notes as well. Yeah. Sonia, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. It was really my joy. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Please, once again, share the podcast with a friend or write a review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And you can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast. We'll come up, click join, and part of the conversation there. Also, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 75. And I guess that's it. So thank you for listening. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.